Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 1st, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, of course, it is necessary to start by commenting on the events that we witnessed in Russia over the past week. You know, we've all been hoping that Putin could be ousted by forces at least somewhat more moderate, which I've been saying all along is the only way I can see this Ukraine situation de-escalating. And instead, there was seemingly an effort to oust him by forces even more bellicose and reactionary. And we could have been looking at a proverbial frying pan to the fire maneuver, not to mention the obvious dangers of civil war in a nuclear-armed country. And uh, it occurs to me that the attempted coup in Sudan in April, which indeed has plunged that country into civil war, is now revealed as Yevgeny Prigozhin's dry run for what he wanted to do in Russia itself. The uh, Rapid Support Forces paramilitary was being groomed by the Wagner Group, as we discussed in our podcast of April 29th and May 6th, so that the itself brutal and reactionary Sudan armed forces could ultimately be pushed out of the way and Sudan turned into an outright Russian puppet state, as opposed to a client state, which it already is. And it looks to me like Sudan was Prigozhin's test war for ousting Putin and making himself the new czar. But it looks like he got cold feet at the last moment, thank goodness, and accepted a deal to go into exile with his loyalists, in Belarus. But it should be kept in mind that Belarus just barely constitutes exile. Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko is really Putin's only outright ally. And Russian nuclear weapons have now been deployed in Belarus. And in fact, in 2019, Putin and Lukashenko agreed to merge their two countries in a union state with a joint parliament, unambiguously a step toward rebuilding the Russian Empire, although progress toward this union state has happily been slowed by petty spatting between the two strongmen. But things are still very much in play here, and these three strongmen, Putin, Prigozhin, and Lukashenko, could yet come to accommodations which would be very bad for Ukraine and the rest of the world. Let's hope they remain divided and weakened. It was certainly interesting watching the tankies respond to all this, that is, the pro-Putin pseudo-leftists. At first, you could tell they were all confused and didn't know who to root for. But as soon as it became clear Putin would retain power, they just could not keep themselves from speculating that Prigozhin is a NATO agent 
And note that Putin's public address after the de-escalation on June 24th was ironic in the extreme. He accused Prigozhin of a stab in the back, quote unquote, lifting a famous line directly from Adolf Hitler. And in the same speech, he refers to the Ukrainians as neo-Nazis, quote unquote. You can't make this stuff up. Another textbook example of what I call fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. And I've already seen speculation online that Prigozhin is secretly Jewish. Of course, you knew that was inevitable. Now, the day before this attempted coup erupted, that is, last Thursday, June 22nd, I had a very politically enlightening experience right here on Manhattan Island that really sheds some light on the whole global struggle for meaningful democracy, autonomy, self-determination, and general liberation by peoples all over the world against empire in its various national manifestations. Peoples who should ideally view each other with a sense of solidarity as natural allies, but are all too frequently pitted against each other in the great power game. On June 22nd, I biked up First Avenue to Diagamaskol Plaza, across from the United Nations, to attend a rally in support of testimony by Puerto Rican independence supporters before the meeting of the UN Special Committee on Decolonization, which, as it has for several years running, approved a resolution, quote, reaffirming the inalienable right of the people of Puerto Rico to self-determination and independence, and calling again upon the United States to assume its responsibility to promote a process to those ends, quote-unquote, reading from the press release from the United Nations. Manuel Rivera, speaking for the organization Puerto Ricanos Unidos en Acción, underscored the need for the island to exercise its right to self-determination with no interference from a foreign country. He called for the Special Committee on Decolonization to commit to a resolution requesting the International Court of Justice to issue an advisory opinion on the case of Puerto Rico, in adherence to the principles of United Nations General Assembly Resolution 1514 of 1960 on the granting of independence to colonial countries and peoples. And the rally in support of the testimony was organized by a broad alliance of independentista groups, including the aforementioned Puerto Ricans United in Action as well as the Puerto Rican Independence Party, which is one of the three major parties on the island, the Partido Nacionalista de Puerto Rico, the Movimiento Independentista Nacional Hostosiano, named, of course, for Eugenio Maria de Hostos, the great progenitor of the Puerto Rican independence movement in the 19th century, and the Frente Independista Boricua, invoking, of course, 
Borinken, the name for the island in the language of the Taino indigenous people, whose culture and even elements of their language does in fact survive among the Hibaros or Campesinos of rural Puerto Rico. And the rally featured the singing of La Borin Kenya, the official anthem of Puerto Rico, actually written in support of the 1868 pro independence rebellion, popularly known as the Grito de Lares, by poet and revolutionary Lola Rodriguez de Tio. I'm going to read from the pamphlet that was given out at the event, entitled Puerto Rican Colonial History. Puerto Rico was first colonized by Spain in 1493. Spanish rule on the island lasted for over 400 years until the invasion of the United States in 1898. Since then, its colonial status has remained. It wasn't until 1949 that the first Puerto Rican governor of the island was appointed In 1952, the island became an autonomous commonwealth with its citizens retaining U.S. citizenship. But regardless of its status, residents of the island are not allowed to vote in the U.S. elections. Moreover, as of 2016, an oversight fiscal board was appointed to the island, rendering the Puerto Rican governor nearly powerless. End quote. I should point out that while the UN General Assembly has since 1952 not listed Puerto Rico as a non-self-governing territory, the Special Committee on Decolonization continues to recognize Puerto Rico as a non-self-governing territory. Puerto Rico has held six plebiscites on its future status, statehood, independence, or the status quo as a so-called commonwealth, actually a colony of the United States. Most recently in 2020, when 52% of the voters on the island endorsed the idea of statehood. However, none of these plebiscites has been binding, and turnout has generally been low due to boycotts by critics who support either the status quo or independence. The leaflet also lists a long train of egregious abuses against Puerto Rico and its people by the United States of the kind committed by colonial powers everywhere. One was the gag law, the Ley de la Mordaza, in force for nine years, starting from 1948, which criminalized any expression of Puerto Rican nationalism, including the singing of La Borinquena, Fear of Music. This era also saw the start of El Carpeteo, a program of surveillance, harassment, and repression against the independence movement by the Intelligence Division of the Police of Puerto Rico, which lasted into the 1980s. Forced sterilization. In 1937, the U.S. imposed Law 116 on the island, legalizing sterilization in the belief that Puerto Rico was 
overpopulated, and that its population could cause trouble if it were not reduced. This law also established a Puerto Rican Eugenics Board empowered to order sterilizations. Yes, really. A total of 97 sterilizations were thusly officially ordered, but coercive sterilizations were widespread on the island from this period through the 1970s, at least. And one that certainly continues into the present day, forced migration, as the leaflet put it, although it may not quite meet a rigorous legal definition thereof, certainly coercive migration with the ongoing economic crisis on the island, compounded by damage to infrastructure and ecology by Hurricane Maria in 2017, which was never really repaired before it was hit again by subsequent hurricanes, all resulting in a mass exodus to the mainland, upwards of a thousand migrating per week at some points, totaling nearly half a million over the past 25 years. And adding insult to injury, even amid all this, there's a kind of gentrification going on on the island, both in the cities and in the campo, the countryside, with lots of gringo capital flooding into the real estate sector, lubricated by Act 22, the Individual Investors Act of 2012, which gives tax incentives to those who relocate to Puerto Rico. So the same forces of gentrification that are pushing Puerto Ricans out of their neighborhoods here in New York City, like the Lower East Side, is also essentially forcing them from the island to places like New York in the first place. Very, very deeply out of whack. So it was good to see unity among the various independista groups at this rally, but unity also has a limit. And now, unfortunately, I have to discuss the way in which this rally was problematic. The sectarian vampires of the gringo alphabet soup left were on hand, of course, including the two most significant tanky factions. One was the so-called Workers' World Party, WWP, which had a small contingent with their usual pre-printed placards, this time reading Independence for Puerto Rico, quote-unquote, with the name and website of their party, the URL being workers.org, which I bitterly resent, as if they really represent the world's workers. They just managed to snarf up that URL before anyone else did. And their position is completely hypocritical and inconsistent. They're like, free Puerto Rico, fuck Ukraine, fuck Taiwan, fuck Tibet, completely in the pocket of the Russian and Chinese governments. Even now that Russia is escalating to genocide in Ukraine. And there is also a very good case that China has been escalating to genocide over the past years in Xinjiang, or East Turkestan. Also on hand was 
WWP's recent offshoot, the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, <clears throat> better termed the Party for Fascism and Dictatorship, which was also listed as having a speaker on the program, although if he actually spoke, it was after I left, and also another sectarian faction of this lineage, the Socialist Workers' Party, SWP, which is not actually tanky. It has somewhat more palatable politics than the other two, which it ultimately, uh, which ultimately emerged from it, if you are going to trace the lineage back. If you don't know the history, I'll just briefly break it down. The SWP was and is the major Trotskyist formation on the American left, founded in the 1920s by people who broke from the CPUSA, supporting Trotsky instead of Moscow and Stalin. Then in 1956, the Soviets invaded Hungary, and this was correctly opposed by the SWP. But there was a faction within the SWP that supported it, viewing the Hungarian Revolution that year, incorrectly, as a counter-revolution, and broke away at that time from the SWP to form the WWP, which started moving back in a more pro-Moscow and Stalinist direction eventually becoming even worse on this count than the CPUSA, which at least broke with Moscow after the Soviet collapse. Workers' World never did. They remain utterly in Putin's pocket. And then around 10 or 15 years ago, the PSL broke off from Workers' World, although there was not any political substance to the split this time, they have identical, terrible politics. It was just about ego and turf, kind of like Putin and Lukashenko. <laughs> and there was also an East Coast, West Coast element to it, like um, Tupac and Notorious Big, with the uh, Workers' World Party being strongest here in New York and the PSL leadership being based in California although they also have a presence here, unfortunately. Now, I think if you asked them, all three of these formations, SWP, WWP, and PSL, would say that they consider themselves Trotskyist. But I would say that really, SWP is the only one that is still carrying the Trotskyist torch for whatever that's worth while the other two are pretty openly Stalinist, and actually worse than Stalinist, worse than merely Stalinist. They aren't even Popular Front Stalinists, but Molotov-Ribbentrop Stalinists, if you get the historical reference. And this difference in their politics is also reflected in their tactics. SWP aren't nearly as obsessive and aggressive about party building, as the other two are. So, as problematic as they are in some ways, I do not call for icing SWP from our movements and activist efforts. I absolutely do support 
icing Workers' World and PSL from our movements and activist efforts. I think that this is mandated both ethically and tactically. I think it is utterly self-defeating to ally even tactically with these ultra-reactionary formations that support dictatorship, fascism, and genocide. And this brings us to the second thing I experienced that day, which makes for an interesting study in contrast. After I left the rally and was biking down First Avenue, yes, against the traffic, busted, I passed this small but very spirited rally at the Azaya Wall, which is two blocks south of Dog Hammarskjöld Plaza and directly across from the UN building, a rally supporting Russian anti-war dissidents, LGBTQ people, and indigenous peoples. They were flying the Free Russia flag, the flag of the anti-Putin opposition, which is white, blue, and white, as opposed to the white, blue, and red of the official Russian flag, with the red symbolizing war, of course. And they had banners reading, Russia is a terrorist state. Putin is a war criminal. No Putin, no war. Protect trans lives. And LGBTQ plus have no human rights in Russia. Which is quite evidently the case. This is a question we have been following on the counter vortex. With an increasingly fascistic cultural conservative agenda, Putin's bloc in the Duma, Russia's parliament, has passed laws increasingly restricting rights for gay and trans people over the past years. Just last November, the Duma passed a tougher version of the 2013 gay propaganda law, which prohibited the promotion of non-traditional sexual relations to minors, quote-unquote. Under the newly passed amendments, spreading propaganda for non-traditional sexual relations among either minors or adults is punishable by a fine of up to 5 million rubles, which is to say around $83,000. So the same shit DeSantis is trying to do in Florida, except even worse, signed into law by Vladimir Putin on November 30th of last year. Russian authorities on April 5th arrested a publicly out gay couple, Haoyang Shu and Gega Gogishvili, for their alleged breach of the law. The two men are accused of violating the law because of videos uploaded to YouTube and TikTok portraying their romance in very innocent terms. The pair amassed a large following on social media by chronicling their experiences in Russia as a gay, non-Slavic couple. After their arrest, a Russian court ruled to deport Shu, a Chinese citizen, back to China. Gogishvili, an ethnic Georgian citizen of Russia, was released from police custody but still faces charges. In 2015, Russia passed a law barring 
transsexuals, exhibitionists, and fetishists, quote-unquote, from driving, finding that their mental disorders, quote-unquote, make them more likely to crash. Oh yeah, that sounds totally scientific. And meanwhile, the Russian Republic of Chechnya, ruled by Putin's ally Ramzan Kadyrov, has emerged as a kind of internal laboratory of Russia's national police state. Reports emerged in 2017 that Chechen authorities had established the first concentration camp for homosexuals since Hitler, following a gay purge in the Southern Russian Republic, in the words of reports from human rights groups, Russian media accounts and human rights organizations said that more than 100 gay men had been detained in connection with their non-traditional sexual orientation or suspicion of such, quote-unquote. Campaigners said gay men were being tortured with electric shocks and, in at least one case, beaten to death. The principal camp was reportedly at a former military barracks in the town of Argun. And I should point out that this was before independent media and human rights groups were basically shut down in Russia by decree of the authorities in the wave of repression since the start of the Ukraine invasion last year. So it is now far more difficult to get out the word of such abuses than it was even in 2017. Under a law introduced in the Duma this April, feminism and the fight for women's rights generally is to be labeled an extremist ideology, quote unquote, and subject to official sanction and silencing. And meanwhile, amid a crackdown on sex deviants and feminists, the laws against domestic violence have been loosened. In 2017, the Duma voted overwhelmingly to decriminalize domestic violence in cases where it does not cause, quote, substantial bodily harm, end quote. Yeah, really. Another sign at the rally read, Free Alexandra Skochilenko. I'm going to read what I uh, wrote down from the handwritten placard that one of the uh, protesters was holding, quote, Alexandra Skochilenko was imprisoned for anti-war protest. Her girlfriend, who was diagnosed with cancer, is not allowed to see her because Russia hates gays and peace, end quote. Okay, we've mentioned Alexandra Skochilenko before on the counter vortex. If you recall, last year, after the Ukraine invasion was launched, There was, initially, a huge wave of anti-war protest across Russia, but a law was quickly passed imposing a 10-year prison term merely for speaking out against the war, or even calling it a war, as opposed to the official euphemism of a special military operation. The street protest in Russia subsided in the face of overwhelming repression after the law was passed, but anarchist-spirited anti-war reality hackers 
started finding creative ways to get around the draconian law. One group, Feminist Anti-War Resistance, started stealthily replacing the price tags on supermarket shelves with messages about Russian atrocities in Ukraine. Alexandra Skochilenko was arrested in connection with such activity in St. Petersburg and faces up to 10 years in prison for discrediting the Russian armed forces, quote, unquote. The folks at the protest were also chanting, Stop Putin, stop war, UN can do more, and Stop Putin, stop war, U.S. can do more. And there was one woman who kept shouting, support indigenous peoples in Russia. Something I was very glad to hear. We have been following the struggles of various Russian indigenous peoples on the counter vortex for the past years. Some of them have been resisting the construction of pipelines through their ancestral territories in struggles directly analogous to that of the Standing Rock Sioux against the Dakota Access Pipeline in the Great Plains of North Dakota. The Telenjit people of Russia's Altai Republic are fighting to stop a new gas pipeline to China that the state hydrocarbons giant Gazprom wants to build through their territory. The Altai pipeline, rendered even more critical with the contraction of Russia's Western markets due to sanctions, would bisect the Golden Mountains of Altai, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and sacred land to the Telenjit people. The Evenk people in North Siberia have launched a campaign against Gazprom's plans for a pipeline through their traditional hunting and fishing grounds. The planned Power of Siberia pipeline is to link oil and gas fields in the Yakushia Republic with the far eastern Russian city of Khabarovsk, cutting through Evenk traditional lands without their informed consent. And we noted the case of Alexander Gabishev, a shaman of the Yakut people from the Siberian region of Yakushia, who in the summer of 2020 attempted to travel on foot to Moscow with the intention of exorcising President Vladimir Putin and his bad energy in a ceremony at the Kremlin, seemingly akin to the Yippies' levitation of the Pentagon in 1967. But Gabishev was arrested en route in the city of Yakutsk and forcibly interned in a psychiatric clinic. And then, of course, there are the Crimean Tartars, actually an indigenous people of Ukraine, but now being oppressed by Russia since the Crimean Peninsula was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. They are the Turkic and Muslim people who were in the peninsula for centuries and had their own independent khanate before it was first conquered by Russia in the 18th century. 
And as we know, because Putin is so notoriously angry about it, the peninsula was transferred from the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian SSR by Khrushchev in 1954, so it wound up in Ukraine after the Soviet collapse. An independent Ukraine allowed the Crimean Tartars to establish a majlis, a local autonomous government. But upon Russian annexation, the Majlis was ordered disbanded and its leaders persecuted and imprisoned for dissenting from having Russian rule imposed on them against their will. Some of these leaders have fled into exile in government-controlled Ukraine and have been the most vocal advocates for rejecting any potential peace deal with Russia that does not include the return of the Crimean Peninsula to Ukrainian rule, allowing them to reconstitute their autonomous government. Moscow has even broached establishing a concentration camp system for disloyal Crimean Tartars, modeled on that which China is imposing on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, where they are euphemistically called rehabilitation centers. The International Court of Justice ruled November 8th last year that it has jurisdiction to hear a case filed by Ukraine against Russia over claims of ethnic discrimination in annexed Crimea. The case argues that the Russian abrogation of the rights of the Crimean Tartars violates the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Ukraine also has a case actually challenging the legality of Russia's Crimea annexation altogether, pending before the European Court of Human Rights. On December 7, 2020, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution urging the Russian Federation, as an occupying power, to immediately, completely, and unconditionally withdraw its military forces from Crimea and end its occupation of Ukrainian territory without delay. Of course, things have only gotten much worse since then. And back in uh, March 2014, after the bogus and controlled referendum in Crimea that led to the peninsula's annexation by Russia, the General Assembly overwhelmingly approved the resolution finding the referendum has no validity, quote-unquote, and calling on nations around the world, quote, to refrain from any action that might be interpreted as recognizing any such altered status, end quote. It should be recalled that in 1944, Stalin had the entire population of the Crimean Tartars forcibly relocated from their homeland on the peninsula to remote camps in Siberia, where many did not survive. They were not allowed to return to Crimea until after the fall of the USSR, nearly 50 years later. They were one of several indigenous peoples who were forcibly relocated during the Stalin years. Another was the Kalmyks, the Mongol and Buddhist people of the North Caucasus, who were similarly deported to Siberia, 
and had their Kalmyk Autonomous Oblast dissolved and their language and culture suppressed. It should also be noted, having mentioned the mass forcible internment of the Turkic and Muslim Uyghur people that has been underway in Western China for the past five years, and how Putin may seek to emulate this policy in Crimea, one of the abuses that Chinese authorities are accused of in the internment camps in Xinjiang is forcible sterilization. In July 2020, lawyers submitted a complaint to the International Criminal Court demanding that an investigation be opened into senior Chinese officials for genocide and crimes against humanity committed against the Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples. The complaint was filed on behalf of the East Turkestan Government in Exile and the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement, based on testimony from survivors of the camps about abuses, including torture, sexual exploitation, coerced labor, and forced sterilization. And finally, I will note that uh, Russia's campaign of cultural repression against the Crimean Tartars includes the banning of music. On September 15th of last year, a local court jailed at least four people involved in a Tartar wedding in the Crimean town of Bakchisarai for performing a Ukrainian patriotic song, Red Kalina. Each accused performer was held for several days. Kalina is apparently a species of the viburnum shrub that grows in Crimea and has become a patriotic symbol. Once again, fear of music and a criminalization of any expression of Crimean Tartar or Ukrainian nationalism, concomitant with a program of surveillance, harassment, and repression against the Crimean Tartar national movement under Russian occupation. And fear of music is also a tendency much in evidence by the Chinese authorities and their compliant puppet government in Hong Kong at the moment. The Hong Kong Department of Justice applied to the High Court of the Special Administrative Region on June 5th for an injunction to prohibit any performance or online dissemination of the song Glory to Hong Kong, anthem of the 2019 protest movement. The government asserts that the song contains secessionist lyrics and constitutes an insult to the Chinese national anthem March of the Volunteers. The action seeks to remove 32 YouTube videos asserting that they breach multiple laws in Hong Kong and China, including the new national security law. I'm not sure if that means blocking the videos within Hong Kong or having them removed from the web worldwide. The good news is Thousands of Hong Kongers responded to the government's move by gathering in public to sing the song in defiance of an ongoing ban on protests. It also shot to the top of the iTunes charts, and on uh, June 12th, a judge postponed deciding on the petition for another month, finding it potentially overbroad 
and asking the government to be more specific on the breadth of its request, a sign that there is still a certain degree of judicial independence in Hong Kong, even now amid the really draconian crackdown, in contrast to mainland China, of course, where there is no semblance of judicial independence. So I do not understand how you can support self-determination and liberation for Puerto Rico, but not for the Tartars and Uyghurs and other indigenous peoples of Russia and China, and indeed to support regime change, or as it used to be called, revolution in Russia itself. The same moral and political principles apply in both cases, but the Puerto Rican independentistas, at least the ones here in New York, are seemingly willing to collaborate with those who actively oppose the struggles of the Crimean Tartars and Ukrainians and Uyghurs and Tibetans, and many of those who support the Tartars and Ukrainians and Uyghurs and Tibetans and Hong Kongers look to the United States, the entity that oppresses and expropriates the people of Puerto Rico for support and succor. Yet another example of how a global divide and rule racket is the essence of the international state system. When the Puerto Rican independentistas ditch the tankies and those who support freedom for the Tartars also support freedom for Puerto Rico, I will know the world is making some progress. And I hope that in jump-starting the discussion here, I have made some small contribution toward that outcome. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been ranting about tonight is fastidiously blogged up, documented, and hyperlinked. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. We just now broached $100 per podcast, which really is just a fraction of what we need to maintain this level of productivity. A lot of research goes into these rants, if you haven't noticed. Throw us a buck a week. We'd really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash CounterVortex. Join the CounterVortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.